to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are in week nine of the year two of reading. And so we've got a little bit left of Amos, a couple of the histories, and then uh, some more time in Mark. And so we're going to pick up right kind of there in the middle of Amos. And we are continuing uh, with a similar theme and similar condemnation uh, around Israel. and but But God reminds them, seek me. And there's life. Seek me and live. Uh, don't seek these various gods and shrines and everything else that you've created in the north, but seek Yahweh. And there's life there. Yeah, I think we see that that this judgment that's coming at this point, it's inevitable. It's not going to be avoided, but you can still return to the Lord. Um, there's not, he's not too far for you to repent and be restored, even if you still live under this judgment. Yeah. And there's themes of justice, righteousness, those phrases get used a lot, which, which do carry within them the language of, uh, charity, generosity, uh, caring for the poor when, and it's gotten so bad that they're even like taxing grain, which is like the lowest subsistence food that you could possibly have. Like a tax on grain was a way to enact a tax even on the poor. And so, uh, this Northern kingdom is certainly building itself on the backs of the poor and disenfranchised and, and God hates it. And God hates evil. He says, hate evil, love what's good and establish justice or, or, or kind of the, 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 the generous right, the, the shalom, um, at the gate, the sort of entrance way to the, to the cities or their towns. And so, uh, it's invitational, it's restorative. And so that's what God desires. And so he speaks his woe on them because that's not where they're at. So before you go there, I just want to mention that I think verse one is really important for us to acknowledge in in chapter five about how it is a lament. Um, No one is taking pleasure in bringing this judgment. But like we read last week, uh, God chastises and punishes us so that we can return to him. And the invitation here is that we don't seek our own solutions, even in modern day. Uh, for Israel, sure, they were seeking other gods or other temples for their solutions. But we oftentimes trust in our 401k or our dream job or finding the right spouse. And ultimately, the invitation for Israel then and for us now is to seek the Lord and find all of our life in there. Yeah. And so God speaks woes. Um, and often this is condemnation that that does come to pass it's almost there's no repentance stories really coming out of woes uh, throughout scripture but god reminds them like that he has no interest in them going through the motions of worship so they're correcting the the patterns of worship is not going to fix it because they, they're still doing the rituals it seems like that they're walking through the motions but god saying but your life is not marked by justice and righteousness kind of a, a similar uh deal with with the pharisees look you guys are doing the right things but your lives are not marked by mercy and care and so um god speaks this woe in this day of the lord that's going to be coming and it's going to be terrible Yeah, we read a lot about the day of the Lord and the different prophets. And um, there's all these kind of like this idea of what the day of the Lord is, is kind of when God comes and he shows up and it's negative in judgment and it's positive in restoration. And um, this is actually, I think, the, the earliest use of it we see in scripture, according to the notes I have at least. But ultimately, this one is primarily just really only negative. The day of the Lord here is not going to be fun for anyone. And yet it's pointing us towards the final and complete day of the Lord when Christ returns and his judgment and wrath will be poured out, but also uh, his restoration and salvation and final completion or consummation of that will be given. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something we'll continue to unpack throughout the, the prophets, uh, this idea of day of the Lord, which does carry with it. Um, a lot of, 
um, different angles to approach it for those that are righteous for the things that are true and right. It's a, it's a good day. And for those that are wicked, it's certainly a bad day. And so, um, and there's continuing the woes. Woe kind of to you. Sorry. still. I still have one more thing to say about yeah, that yeah. section. Um, that phrase, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like an ever flowing stream. This is something that is probably a familiar phrase to those of us who have been reading the Bible for a while. And I just, I want to pause here and picture the beauty and the holiness of God in this. It's not in feasts or solemn assemblies where they honor their lips, but their hearts are far from God. But the root issue here that, that Amos is calling out is their idolatry and idolatry. And I said this last time and I'll say it again. It's our idolatry that leads to mistreating others because we are not following the God who dignifies and values all people. So if someone, even if you find in your life that you are mistreating someone, whether you're disrespecting someone who cuts you off or in line at the store or um, something greater than that, that's all forming out of some sort of misguided or misaligned worship. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, we, we, we continue with these woes and the woes are really to those who are comfortable. They're eating well, they're drinking well, they're pretty well to do. Um, and, and often this well to do is at the expense of others. And that's often, that's true in Amos's time. It's still true in our days. And, and I, I don't know how we don't read Amos and don't feel in some ways accused or uncomfortable. Um, and, and there are prophetic books that may seem a little less apropos to us, but this one that speaks of luxury and comfort and, and that being sometimes on the backs of, of those who are disenfranchised that we wear clothes and have phones and all these things labeled made in China. And, and we can go online and read the news about how a whole ethnic group is being kidnapped and used in the work of manufacturing. And ultimately many go missing and, and yet still be like, well, uh, but I, I want my phone to be cheap. And so um, we make our purchases, we make our decisions and the empire and the comforts that we have are built on the backs of poor and disenfranchised. And so there's ways that Amos speaks that should make us uh, yeah. have to move around in our chair a little bit. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I hear this or oftentimes I hear it and I just feel overwhelmed by it and I, do, I don't know what to do. Um, and to be honest, I'm not 100% sure exactly how we should respond, but I think it's going to take time. But my encouragement to you is to ask God for eyes to see those who are oppressed and on the margins, those who we are oppressing and marginalizing, even when we don't realize we're doing it. Ask God to free us from idols that keep us pursuing comfort and ease instead of justice and righteousness. Um, and I, I'm kind of like dancing around, even with my own idea. This is February and Lent is starting in a week or two from when we're recording this. Um, just spending Lent thinking around these ideas of justice and righteousness regarding Amos and especially verse 524 about justice with like rolling waters. And then um, in these woes talking about how justice has been turned into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. So start with prayer is ultimately what I'm saying here. <laughs> right. Uh, and so um, God is clear that there's just judgment coming and it will be coming through his pagan army. And so uh, he plays out these sort of visions for Amos. One is of locusts, which immediately should make us have to go back to the plagues to, to start thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just when this harvest is about to begin, like, They've spent all winter eating through all their stores, stores, and now they're finally like, oh, but we're about to replenish. And, and then this moment of harvest comes and the locusts dash all of it. Like there's, there's no, there's no backup plan 
in, in the springtime. And this is sort of that picture of there's no, there's no storehouse you can run to, to fix this. You have nothing and it will be destroyed. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a pretty harsh picture, but Amos has these intercessions in the process. It almost feels like, uh, if you remember, um, um, either Abraham or Moses haggling with God being like, Oh, maybe there's a righteous person or, or can you not relent? Can that seems, that seems so hard. And so Amos is doing the same thing saying like, Oh yeah, but the, the North is so small. Like we can't stand that. Is there anything else? And then God's like, well, how about fire? Uh, which once again, uh, you have a little bit of this in the plagues, at least with the hail. And so, um, and fire itself is often associated with God's judgment throughout scripture or God's presence, either one. Uh, and so, um, but Amos asked for again to, to relent. And then this picture of plumb line, I'll include a link. If you don't know what a plumb line is, uh, it's how you build straight walls, basically, uh, using gravity. Uh, and so, you had this idea as if God was saying, look, I built this wall straight. Like I built this wall to plumb, but I'm showing you right now with my new plumb line showing back up in this wall, that this wall is not straight anymore. Um, and I'm going to have to tear it all down. And so, um, yeah, he's going to provide, uh, or he's going to bring these judgments. And he actually tells them, look, just like the plagues, but this time there's no passing by, there's no, um, Passover event for you to get out of this. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be pretty scary to hear that <laughs> for Israel back then saying the judgment that came on Egypt is now going to come on us and mm-hmm. we don't uh, we don't get a, a way through the sea for this specific judgment. Yeah, and Amos is uh, clear where he comes from in, in a way that says, look, I'm not from the school of prophets. There's there's no line. There's no special camp of prophets that I come from. I'm, I'm, he's an outsider. It's kind of like, it reminds me a little bit of Jesus when everybody's like, he speaks differently than all the other rabbis. I think Amos, it's the same thing. Like, I'm not... I'm not in that camp and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking very differently and like, and, and I come from a shepherding background, but I'm here to, to tell you what is true. Um, and he prophesies against Amaziah in the process. Yeah. So Amaziah is a priest of Bethel. And so he's profiting from the oppression of these people and he's trying to get Amos to quiet down because it's affecting his money and his success. Right. And then if, and then because he does this, Amos is basically like, everyone's going to be judged, but you're going to be the first one who experiences it. And I, and not just you, but your family. Um, and I think it's a reminder that our sins affect others. And, and when we are in unrepentant sin, others we love and our families, our close friends will be impacted and they will suffer as well. And sometimes... Sometimes this feels a little bit unfair, and I I don't think we can jump into a whole um, discussion on the fairness of God's justice. Um, But there's this quote I read in the Gospel Transformation Bible that talks about the wrath of God, and it says, A wrath-free gospel is no gospel at all. If grace rescues us from nothing, then it is not really grace. And so, again, this is to point us to our need for grace um, and our need to be rescued from God's wrath. Yep. And so uh, there's so once again this this talk of a coming day uh, of of bitterness. But uh, I love how Andrew, uh, Andrew Peterson, Eugene Peterson, um, talks or retranslates this section and sort of his accusations. It says, "Listen to this: You who walk all over the week, you who treat poor people as less than nothing, who say, when's my next paycheck coming so I can go out and live it up, or how long till the weekend when I can go out and have a good time? Who give little and take much?'" And never do an honest day's work. You exploit the poor using them. And then when they're used, you discard them. And there's definitely like such a weight to me to read that and to, and to feel like I am a, a northern kingdomite. Uh, and sometimes, uh, or maybe more often than I'm very comfortable with in the ways that uh, I spend my money, the way I think about my paycheck, the way I think about all these sort of things. And and God reminds him, look, this, there's just darkness coming. So this 
plague idea keeps mm-hmm. going. There's a reference to Nile. There's decreation sort of themes here. And it's interesting because here uh, God speaks of famine. And, and earlier in Amos, he actually talked about famine as, as a method to sanctify and to bring them back and to remind them that God is really God. But uh, here it's a picture of punishment too. Yeah. So we hear, and Amos is really clear that Israel, who was the previously oppressed, has become like Egypt the oppressor. They will no longer pass through the waters of judgment, but they will come under the judgment that Egypt came under. And I think God is basically saying to them, you know, and he kind of says to us too, don't just come to church and sing the songs and read the Bible if you're still buying and selling people for your own gain. Loving God means that we love others and worship God is basically saying is worthless if it's also not given in identifying or um, giving accurate identity and value and dignity to souls. Yep. And so, uh, and, and there's a reference here to the fact that God's, there's no escaping uh, mm-hmm. what is coming here, uh, that, that God's judgment will be truly complete. And even a, a sort of Psalm 139-ish kind of type of reference there of, whether you go down to Sheol, whether you go into heavens, it's certainly there. Uh, but it's going to be like a sieve. It's, there's a shaking out and removal of what is good versus what is bad. Yeah. And then our restoration, we get some hope. Uh, Amos has or has little moments, but they're there. Um, and it's even significant that uh, the Jerusalem Council that we read about in Acts uh, back in Acts 15, uh, James actually uses this this section to, to talk about um, to their way through whether God can be truly the God of the Gentiles as well. Uh, in the phrase here, the sort of prophecy here of there'll be Gentile nations who call me by my name uh, leads them to sort of have the conclusion that that it's not just the Israelites who get to call Yahweh by name, but but all the Gentiles as well. Um, and there's this picture in, in, in the plowing and the grape harvest. Um, ultimately, the, the timing of both those things, the planting versus the harvesting um, and the stomping out of wine, um, is really this picture of like, there'll be such an abundance that we're not even done harvesting when we're like actually making the, the products that, that need to be made. And so um, it, it's this true picture of abundance that will be coming one day. Um, and it's, it's great because I feel like Amos condemns the poor and stuff like that throughout the text. But at the same time, like God's pictures of, of Shalom are also enjoying his good gifts as well. Uh, it's not, um, it's certainly doing enjoying those good gifts not at the expense of others, which is really the condemnation of the book of Amos. But um, good gifts that come from God are still there to be enjoyed, and and they're certainly metaphorical. But but we should we should still see um, the 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 good gifts God gives us as practice for the the greater feast that we'll get one day. Yeah, these last four verses are so powerful and that they give us hope. Like we talked about at the beginning, Amos is a pretty dark book, uh, and it definitely falls a little heavier on the judgment side rather than the restoration side. But at the end, we are reminded that God does not abandon his people for good, and there will and always remains a remnant coming from the line of David, and this blessing is going to be for all nations. So we get to think back to what we read in our first couple weeks of this, Genesis 12, 3, about how God uh, set Abraham apart to be a blessing to all nations. And then we hear about this in Amos, and then even we read in Revelation 7 of how every tongue and tribe and nation and people will be worshiping God. Christ has made a way for all nations to worship him and to receive that blessing And so I think we, again, are just reminded that we as a faithless people have a faithful God. We can trust that he will restore and he will plant and that we will live forever in his perfect kingdom. And Amos understood this as place, but we as Christians on on this 
side of the cross, understand it as kingdom. And it points us to Christ's second coming and the new heavens and the new earth and how amazing that day will be when the remnant gathers together and worships God eternally. So final thoughts? Um, Gosh, this I felt kind of beat up after reading this book. <laughs> it was really heavy to read about how much of um, a theme of social justice there is, like we talked about. Now, I think it's important for us to remember that the entire Bible is about social justice, but it really stood out to me in Amos. And I just found myself thinking through, throughout the whole thing about how I am the wealthy and how I am the rich that Amos talks about here and reflecting on how I can steward my privilege to love others, to dignify them and to honor them as image bearers. Um, I think honestly, my accountability here is that I just need to sit down and write out what needs to change in my own life so that I can take practical action. Um, I want to incorporate more clearly and articulately the ideas of justice and righteousness into the way I live my life. And I don't want to be impulsive this time. I really want to be prayerful and let the words of Amos and this truth just soak into me so that I'm transformed uh, from the inside out and that I truly can live in such a way that... um, I can honor God with my lips and also that my heart is near to him. And I think the other reminder is that as we obey God, we will enjoy God and we will never, ever regret obedience, even if it means temporary or short-term sacrifice or suffering. Yeah. And um, yeah, as, as I was reading it, certainly there's a lot of um, kind of punches thrown uh, in terms of um, God's accusations, probably uh it's it's interesting that Amos is really one of the first prophets we're encountering. Um, and, and it was during a season where Israel's kind of well to do. And, um, and as I've said, I think we avoid sometimes the prophets in um, our Western American context because they might speak a little too personally. And, and I think Amos does. Uh, and God's call and God's covenant to have a people to himself includes in it that he will bless us to be a blessing to others. And when our blessings come on the backs of others, we've completely lost the point of the story. Yeah. And, um, and it's not to say you can't have good things. You can enjoy good things and stuff like that. But if they're at the expense of somebody else's suffering and if they're at the expense of somebody else, we, we've lost what righteousness really does look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and God desiring to set things right and to bless the world through us. And so, um, really thinking about, the, the filter of which uh, I purchase things, I spend my time, I care for others, um, trying to think through, okay, what does it look like uh, to, to righteously and ethically think through clothing choices and righteously think through uh, technology you buy. And so, um, yeah, and, and out of a desire to, to, to be obedient after what God has called his people to be, um, yeah, and, and certainly it won't be perfect on this side of eternity, and that's what Jesus, part of what Jesus died for. But um, yeah, that we are the restorers, and we are the ones who um, should operate our our kingdoms with an open gate, full of justice, which yeah. carries with it generosity. And so, um, yeah, it's tough. It's it's a weighty one. Yeah, I hope you guys were impacted by Amos and reading it and studying it this time around. All right, let's get back into some histories, which may not take us very much time. It's a lot of uh, quick hits on kings that are pretty shady or not great at what they do. Kind of like a lightning round. Yeah. Uh, Azariah, though, is in Judah, and at least from the king's perspective, eh, he's not so terrible. He didn't totally deal um, 
with some of the worship problems, but he didn't seem to promote it either. But we do find out he's leprous, and as you read later in the week, you find out exactly what happened to cause that. Kings just leaves it out. Yeah. So we see that these kingdoms are, are withering and they're falling apart because these kings are not ruling under God's design. Yeah. And then we get, uh, after Jeroboam the second, we kind of get a series of like six quick kings and they only, a few of them only reign for like two years or less and they have assassinations. It's, it's kind of a mess. Um, so Zechariah is the last of Jehu's line, which God promised Jehu four more on the line. He's wicked and he's killed by Shalom, who yeah. wants a throne. And Shalom reigns for like a moment. Yeah. Uh, and then awful and violent Menahem, Menahem comes along and he's he's so violent. He's cutting open pregnant women and his conquests and stuff like that. He's shady. Yeah. He reigns for 10 years and he's really known for two things. And it's ripping open pregnant women and taking money from the wealthy to pay off the king of Assyria. Yeah. So he leaves him. So Assyria leaves him alone. Yep. He's not great. Uh, Pekahiah, he reigns, but he's got the same old sins all going all the way back to Jeremiah the first. Yeah. And then Pekka follows him after. And this we start seeing the Assyrians start making their way in. We we get met, mention of Tilgath Pileser, uh, who we're going to see a few times mentioned. Um, and so they're starting to show up. Yeah. So we're getting ready for the exile to happen. I think we've got one more ruler after Pekka. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's it's coming soon. Yep. And then and, we move to Jotham and Judah. Yeah, we go back down south, uh, and we even find out his dad's name is Zadok, which uh, was the name of David's priest. So I don't know if there's meant to be. I don't know if that's a priestly line name. Uh, so, uh, but we'll we'll keep going. Uh, I just have some thoughts on Zadok, uh, and so we jump over to Second Chronicles twenty six. Yeah, and Uzziah, who was also Azariah, it's just different Super names confusing. depending on time uh, when these are written, uh, but. Uh, Uzziah, we find out, is generally good. He wins some wars. He makes allies. He builds up cities, agricultural systems. He builds an army. Um, Things are going well, at least initially for him. Yeah, I think, you know, the Chronicler was a lot more detailed in the story because Azariah or Uzziah still started humbly. And he even emphasizes that he sought the Lord because he had the spiritual direction of Zechariah. So we see... God's design for the priests and the kings working together. You can't lead or follow God in a vacuum. And so it starts out really strong, but then... Yeah, pride comes before the fall, right? Yeah. And so his pride made him think he could do whatever he wants, uh, clearly violating the rules of the temple. And so... um, even when he's called on it, even when the priests go, you can't do this, he gets angry. Instead of, like, this is a moment he could repent and not have leprosy, but he gets angry, he keeps going further, he ends up leprous. Um, yeah, yeah, I think sometimes, and we see this in modern day, one single decision made in pride can change everything. So the entire course of Uzziah's life changed because of that arrogance. And instead of repenting, he grew angry. Uh, but always remember that God's mercy is not far from us either. We need to repent and humble ourselves and continue to ask the Lord to make us and keep us humble. And so New Testament, uh, we're jumping into Mark 4 through 6. Um, I hope you enjoyed reading these quick hits of a bunch of different stories. Um, and coming immediately off this idea of, of good soil producing good fruit, it, there's also the, then this idea. I mean, it's going to produce kingdom fruit. That, like That's the theme of Mark is the idea of the kingdom. Um, and, um, and so I think what Mark is after putting the story right after is like, look, you have to show people what kingdom fruit and kingdom living actually looks like. Like they are to see this light in you. You can't hide it. It's meant Mm -hmm. to be seen. So if we have the word of God and we've accepted the good soil and it's being grown, God will keep giving to us. There'll be the word of God and it'll go deeper and deeper in death. It'll produce deeper and deeper fruit. Uh, It'll be multiplied. 
Yeah. I mean, you think of like many of us came to Christ through seeing someone and just saying, Hey, there's something different about you. Or we've heard others say that about us. That is a light in us that comes from God. We will live different lives for those of us whose hope is in heaven and not on the earth. And then there's some of these are a little hard to sometimes parse out of, of who's the sower, what's the seed. Are we talking about the kingdom? Are we talking about individuals? Are we talking about the church? Or, um, and so even reading commentators, are, they are not totally in agreement um, on all these things. But um, yeah, so this might be about the seed, but when it's planted, it grows, and it's just what it's designed to do. Maybe like Paul, when he says, like, look, I planted a Paul's water, but God still made the growth happen, and healthy soil will do that. Or maybe it's about the kingdom expanding and, and the harvest that will come one day when the kingdom expansion is done and, and it happens um, whether we're noticing it or not it will continue to do so yeah I think there's a theme of faith in here and in the next one of just remembering that uh, we don't know everything that's going to happen and so part of the process is trusting God, that God knows what he's doing and is doing it in his perfect time we get the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, if you can remember back to our Matthew podcast on this, um, it's interesting. Matthew uh, provides so many more like little hidden hints and hidden meanings in his parables um, because I think he's dealing with a crowd that understands that style of teaching where um, you have this odd thing included in there that causes you to, to have to ask more questions and then dive a little deeper. Mark is a little lighter on those things because he's dealing with a Roman audience that just wants things one after the other. Um, but you can't take Jesus's teaching and totally adapt it. And so I think Mark's still doing some of that, even in this story, this is like a perfect example of that. So, uh, the parable is the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. And so the mustard seeds, yes, are small, uh, but they're also, uh, mustard's kind of a weed. It's not like something that was cultivated per se. Um, it's a weed, it spreads. It's really hard to get rid of if you get it into your garden. Um, it's it's it just keeps going. And not only that, it doesn't really grow into a tree. It's more like a mustard bush. Um, and so there's some little pieces of the story that makes you go, "Hold on, like what's really going on here?" And um, and I think it carries with it this idea of like if you're a Roman, you're hearing about the kingdom of Caesar. The idea that the kingdom is like a tiny seed that this dead rabbi in the middle east um versus the, the caesar like it's so small and it's it's insignificant in a lot of ways but yet like this mustard weed that grows and it there's kind of no turning back and it will spread and it will continue to sort of infiltrate um but then the the language around uh, but it'll grow into this tree and the birds will rest upon its branches stuff like that i think that's pulled straight from ezekiel 17 of this idea of this this one day when when the, the god will um kind of replant in some ways um and it'll spread in such a way that even the gentiles are finding peace and 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 goodness and, and blessing underneath uh, the, that umbrella of the kingdom. And so um, all those things are tied into this little story that most of us kind of are so familiar with that we miss a lot of these pieces, but um, this idea of what the, what the kingdom's really like. Yeah. And how we don't see it in full. We don't have, see it having spread or grown uh, to full maturity, but we know it's happening. The kingdom of God is continuing to move forward and to grow and increase. And we are part of that increase. So remember, we are a faith-based people and we need to trust even what we cannot see, including that the gospel is going forth in seemingly impossible circumstances and God's kingdom is continuing to increase in us and through us. 
So Jesus crosses over uh, from Jewish territory to the Gentile territory. And, and I wonder in the story if Jesus is like um, sleeping with one eye open in the front of this boat on their way to um, this mission towards the Gentiles. And he's sort of like, hey, uh, guys, do you get it? Like, are you ready to go to Nineveh? Like this sort of Jonah kind of moment for Jesus in the boat. But um the storms, the storms become overwhelming, and Jesus eventually stands up and says, "Silence, be still." And the language there is unique. It's uh, similar to what you also read this week in Psalm 107. Uh, it is there like the storm is, and the people cry out, and the Lord hushes the waves. Um, or in Psalm 89, you have this sort of similar moment, and then the psalmist kind of responds to uh, God of the waves, being like, "Who is like this God? Like who is this?" Which is the reaction of the disciples. It's almost like they know their Bibles, and um, <laughs> there's there's some richness here it's not a random story about a storm like there's so many pieces of the old testament coming forth uh and and linking to to the incredible story and yes jesus has power over nature yes jesus has power over healing and all these kind of things which certainly are part of these stories but i think we should sometimes behold just the uniqueness of the 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 writers who are telling the story of who jesus is and tying in all these beautiful things like mark is absolutely proclaiming jesus as yahweh by his link to one one to someone seven here. Yeah. And, you know, Chris mentioned that one of the themes of Mark is the kingdom of God. Another one that we'll see at the beginning and the end of Mark is this idea of Jesus being the son of God, his divinity. And so we're going to see this series of stories that is showing Jesus's divinity. And so here we see that he is God because he is Lord over the physical. Think about all of the Israelites and the other pagan nations, how they attributed the weather to their God or gods that they serve. So we hear and see Jesus showing that he controls the weather as God. Yep. And here's another story where context is just helpful. And um, you've got these these collection of boys from Galilee who uh, land in this uh, pagan land. And the first thing they encounter is this demon-possessed guy. So uh, it's got to be a great experience for them. And there's much details just to paint, just a picture of enslavement and shackling and, and ex- that this man has experienced. And that, that demon, um, when he names himself, uh, names himself a, a basically a Roman identifier. The, like the legion is the largest unit of the Roman military. And not only that, but the legion in this region has a very specific symbol. And their symbol is the pig or the the boar. And so um, the fact that there's legion, there's pig, like all this stuff is meant to point us to sort of Rome. And it's almost like um, the, the driving out of this demon, this enshackling, enslaving demon into the boars and into the water, into the abyss, like carries with it Jesus's even power over Rome and sort of the the thumb in his nose in some ways at, at whatever fake power that really exists in Rome. And, and it's interesting that people respond in a unique way. Like you got to imagine pigs and all that are part of their their livelihood uh, this is probably one of the main crops or main uh, exports for them um, and now the thing that is their livelihood but maybe their security their well-being um, has been tinkered with it's been messed with and we even saw this earlier uh with with the hosea story and we're we see this with um uh the the silversmiths in ephesus and stuff like that it's like what happens when jesus messes with uh your 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 comforts and your well-being like are you going to accept him as still as king and when he's shown his power in that moment or are you going to reject him and at this moment at least for these people they're, they're they want nothing more to do with this jesus even though he just performed this crazy miracle to set this man free that's probably been messing with them in the city all the time um, but jesus has messed with their economic security so that's a no-no 
Yeah, and I think I mean it's cool that this guy wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, "Go home and tell your friends." And you know, probably nobody who's listening to this podcast has been exercised from demons that went into a herd of pigs that threw themselves into the sea and destroyed yeah, the livelihood that, of an that entire town. That would be pretty town. specific, right? That's <laughs> unlikely. But you guys, we have all been healed from something. Our lives have all taken a major turn from when we weren't following Jesus and then we were. So don't forget what God has saved you from and then go tell your friends and tell your family about Jesus. He is worth testifying about. Yeah. And at least one of the gospel writers, when they land back in this place, like suddenly there's throngs of people that come out to see Jesus. And so this man does do exactly what Jesus Tells them to go do, and That's people. Awesome. Uh, next time they end up, people people are ready uh, to interact with Jesus. Then we get a classic uh, kind of Mark and sandwich here of uh, like a beginning and end part with a little story stuck in the middle. Um, and we did cover these texts before, and most of the points are the same. But this bleeding woman um, carried with her uh, kind of a superstition, a little bit uh, based upon Malachi four, this idea that the Messiah would have healing in the corners of his cloaks in the in the sitsits of his uh, of what he's wearing um, but you got to remember like and I think there's kind of a little bit more of the point is is the who of the story I mean this woman is an outsider uh, she wouldn't be allowed on temple ground she wouldn't be allowed to touch anybody she can go to synagogue um, she's in a constant state of unclean for the past 12 years like she, she there's there's almost nothing she was allowed to do um, and yet of all the people that Jesus points out saying your faith like the faith like there's plenty of people in the crowd that probably have faith in Jesus but there's something unique about this woman and, and he says your faith um, has made you well. Your this this unclean woman being healed um, is such a tremendous kind of story. And and compared to contrast to to Jairus, who now this girl is dead. The professional mourners are there. Jesus is basically about to punk him uh, by saying the kid's not asleep or the kid's not dead, just asleep. Uh, which to me has these little Elisha callbacks. But the compare contrast of what Jairus is and what this woman is, and and even expectation, the fact that Jairus is a synagogue ruler and he heals a kid, like most people listening at the time would be like, that's that's amazing. It's an amazing thing to happen, but Jairus is a righteous man. He's a synagogue ruler and stuff like that. And and got yet Jesus's immediacy and and some of the comparing of the story. Like Jairus Jairus had like 12 years of blessing that was about to like end with this dead daughter but this woman had 12 years of agony that jesus heals immediately and jairus was important this woman and wasn't nobody we don't even get her name when we certainly get jairus's name jairus was wealthy and this woman has spent all the money she even had on doctors jairus was public but yet this woman came secretly but jairus uh thought jesus had to do a lot and the woman simply has faith that, that just touching the garment and jesus responded to the woman immediately versus uh, the delay with jairus and jairus's daughter was healed secretly but this woman was a public display for people and so these comparisons kind of play out like the, the the emphasis on the who of the story yes jesus can heal but who does jesus heal who does who does he immediately focus on and spend time with and respond to and have a public spectacle about this on the edge broken marginalized woman yeah you know there's quite a few different things being illustrated here in themes within Mark. So the first, you know, we talked about Jesus as Lord over the physical, calming the storm. 
Lord over the spiritual and healing the man with the demon. And then we see him as Lord and his divinity over death and disease here in this story. Um, and the other pattern we see, even in chapter five with the man and the demon and the woman and Jairus' daughter, is this idea of cleanness. Jesus enters situations that would make him ceremonial unclean according to the Levitical law. But there's this amazing reversal in that instead of someone who is unclean making Jesus unclean, his presence makes her clean and he remains clean. So we see these continued stories of Jesus being God himself, being the one who can cleanse and the one who is Lord over all. And I think one of the things that stands out to me in reading these stories is we see their faith and their faith comes, um, is I guess the command or the call is to not fear, but to believe. Um, solution, the solution to fear is faith, which is what we see here. So it takes us back to the kingdom of God in parables. We can't see everything that's going on, and it may cause us to fear at times, but we know how it's going to end, and we know that our God is good. So faith is the antidote to fear. Yeah, and then Jesus uh, ends up back in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, Mark gives us a lot less context in this story than some of the other gospel writers, but um, I, I think the the hints that are there, um, the the fact that um, he's referred to as Mary's son and not Joseph's son, um, I think are a, a bit of a jab, uh, as if they're saying, "Look, isn't this Jesus the, the the bastard child or the born out of wedlock child?" Like he he. he uh, at the time would not have even really um, culturally um, been able to be developed as a rabbi. He kind of had to go to um, his father, I guess, to be trained. Uh, the, the, the expectation is that he wouldn't be able to carry the authority to, to be a teacher. And so uh, for him to do this, that's why they take great offense at him. Um, Cause he's, he's the scandalous son of his mother. Um, and yeah. so, yeah. And he's not going to put on a show for the skeptics. Nope. Um, he has a meaning and a reason and a purpose behind what he does. Yep. But he does continue to teach. And then Jesus sends out the 12 uh, and he sends them out with just about nothing. Uh, like they would have to rely on the hospitality of others. And once again, like that's a hallmark of faithful Torah obedience. Like you show hospitality to the outsider and they are forced into finding people of peace in their cities. There have to be people that, that almost like finding a Boaz who um, are following the law in the midst of people who aren't. And, and Jesus gives um, even warning saying there's going to be towns you enter. You may not find anyone who's, who's willing to welcome in the outsider. And so if that's the case, dust off your feet and and their experience is going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be worse actually. Um, cities that, themselves are connected with this idea of inhospitality um, in nature. Uh, but they go around preaching repentance and healing many. They do exactly what Jesus does. Yeah, I like this idea of putting the disciples in a position of dependence, not having any extras, because it also gives those who they're ministering to an opportunity to be participants in the work of Jesus rather than just passive receivers of it. And then smack dab in the middle of uh, the sending out and the return of these disciples, we get a large and very detailed section around the death of John the Baptist. Um, now why Mark includes so many details, I'm not totally sure. Um, but at the same time, you have a Roman audience whose probably greatest challenge for them is obedience in the face of the powers that be particularly Caesar. Um, and any calling of Caesar to morality and ethos, an ethos that is kingdom oriented or anything like that. And so, um, 
you have that as a Roman backdrop to hearing this gospel. And Jesus just said, I'm going to send you out and there's going to be feeling people who don't listen. And, and then to interrupt that story with a story of one John the Baptist who speaks to the powers that be and they don't listen. And not only that, but he dies at the hands of the powers that be. Um, and, and by this point, Herod's probably dead himself too. And so um, I think Mark may be reminding through Jesus's words, um, his, these, the, this audience of, of Roman Christians or soon to be Christians or whatever, um, that following Jesus may even include the mess that is, um, calling people to repentance and maybe being persecuted for it. Yeah, that's good. So Psalm uh, 107, uh, which as we said, yeah, I think you kind of hit on that already with the calming of the storm and how we see that direct connection there. Yeah. He truly is the Lord who calms the storm. And then Proverbs 25. Um, so yeah, we see a lot of pictures of wisdom in here. We see that wisdom is seeking righteousness and leadership, uh, not being too assertive with leaders and being patient with your leaders. Wisdom is listening well and being thoughtful with your words. Uh, it says don't sing songs to sad people, which kind of made me laugh because when I'm sad, I really love music. <laughs> um, and then twice it says don't eat too much honey. And I think this is just the reminder that too much of a good thing is destructive for us, um, which is probably a very good warning again in our uh, wealthy and consumeristic culture. Yeah. Proverbs 25, it's, um, it has some few good liners that even get picked up in the New Testament, like if your enemy is hungry, which is great because Jesus is like, when I was hungry, did you give me something to eat? When I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? And and Proverbs is saying, even if your enemy is hungry, you should be doing that. Um, and Jesus Jesus was kind of like, when when did we, uh, or the disciples are like, when did we not do that? Anyways, uh, and then um, like a muddy spring or a polluted well or the righteous when they give way to wicked, which is absolutely what we're struggling with in the Old Testament right now. I'm such a good picture of like, purity and impurity and cleansing and yeah for real and lack of righteousness and then like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control which we've certainly seen some of the kings as well so what should we look for next week well we're going to start hosea next week you guys it's a fairly well-known book within the minor prophets most people know the story of hosea and gomer um so a couple things to look for there's again, there's pretty low hanging fruit with messianic connections here. Where do you see Christ? What position and role is Christ in this story? And how does Hosea itself point to Christ as our ultimate deliverer? And also, there's a lot, there's a, a less easy to follow structure in Hosea, but bit, follow yeah. a pattern of God saying, I will, and see what you can see there. Um, and in Mark, look for themes of discipleship failure in the next section when the disciples fail at doing what they're supposed to do well. We see a lot of that in Mark, but you'll see quite a bit of it in the next section. Yeah. And so for me, uh, I mean, I, I'm for people watching the Bible Project before they even read the books because I think he tends to just provide outlines than interpretations. And so it's always nice to know a little bit of structure and outline as well. Um, and as you're reading, think back a little bit to the analogy of God and his people and sort of a marriage state. I'm trying to remember if we talked about it in the podcast, but um, I think even Hosea gives us hints of where marriage really began for the Israelites. And so uh, think about that. And then the New Testament, uh, there's a bunch of short stories. And even as we just saw in some of the stories we've seen, um, I don't think Mark's putting things together haphazardly. Um, And as you read through, think about the section before and the section after and why that story may be right there and what comes after and how it might bring meaning and context to that individual story. Um, I don't think they're meant to be read alone. So uh, that's it for us this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.